Good morning, church. Our reading is Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the living word of God for us today. Well, this, excuse me, this summer, I have um, picked up um, riding my bike so I'm, I'm, I'm bike riding now. I uh, retired my rollerblades. And if you were in my neighborhood, you'd see me tooling around there. And I no longer have to take the mocking from my kids because, you know, an old man running around on rollerblades, they would get tickled as I'd go out about that. I would say this. I don't know that riding a bike uh, is any safer, which is actually why I, I did it. And also the fact is I hate to run. It's not that I don't like it. I just never like running. And then, of course, I need to do something uh, for exercise, when I leave my neighborhood, of course, I'm on my bike, and my goal is to return safely, you know, after this, this ride. Um, last, not, not this Monday, but the Monday a week ago, I was out riding. I live in Cottonwood in Franklin, and uh, so I just go straight out towards, you know, Leaper's Fork and all that whole area out there, and I was riding, riding my bike. I got one of those straight-handled road bikes, got the skinny tires, but not the curved bars, and, uh, and I'm, you know, going along and, and because I'm kind of new to doing this now and I'm usually, you know, out about an hour, my hands get numb. Those of you who ride bikes know this, your hands get numb. And so, you know, every once in a while you find a spot and I'm just shaking my hands out, just shaking my hands out like this. I'm going along a road in this direction and shaking this hand out, you know, and then I'm driving, holding the hand and shaking this hand out. And it dawns on me, my wedding band is on this hand. I didn't lose it, so relieve that. But I'm shaking my hand, and I think about it, so I look, just look for a moment. When I look back, I kid you not, my tire, front tire was on the edge of the road. There was no gap between my tire and the pavement. It was just a straight drop-off. Now I'm only talking like three feet drop-off, but when you're going 20 miles an hour on a bike and it's just these ditches, and just took my breath away, and I just was like, and I got back over this way. You know, I'm out there for about... You know, as I said, about an hour for a bike ride, and it could have been over, honestly, in two seconds, you know, just a glance away. And the fact of the matter is that I got distracted. That's just so simple. I just got distracted from what I was doing, and it certainly could have been, uh, could have been bad. I share that story to say this, that, you know, in your family, in your personal life, and in organizations, in particular, I want to say this, as a church, something very similar can happen, has happened, and, and, and will happen. 
And that is we get distracted as a church. I mean, it's like we start out in a direction and then we get distracted. And while we may not end up in the ditch, the reality is we can very easily end up in time where we weren't intending to go because we got distracted in those moments. It's the reason that Rob and I, at the beginning of each school year, it's kind of this calendar year for us as a church even, we, we stop and we pause and we, and we say, let's take a hard look at what matters most. In other words, let's take, a, let's take an extended look at that which we need to pay attention to, the main thing, the, the thing we don't need to forget. Now for us, you know, this is review in a sense, I want you to look on the side screens. I'm gonna show a few slides. The first one is, well, what's the main thing? What's the main thing? The main thing is our mission. That answers why we exist and what we do. And you'll see here uh, why we exist, what we do. We, uh, we exist to glorify God and make disciples. And, and, and that's the why. What do, we, what do we do? Well, by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus why we exist and what we do. Y'all, that's the main thing. That's what we've got to keep our eyes on and not glance away at any time. Now, how we do this, again, it's review. I want to look at this other slide. Um, This this reminds us, the, the way we go about it is what we describe as a discipleship pathway, our discipleship pathway. And you'll note here, there's two square boxes and two circles. And I'm gonna describe it this way. There are two corporate commitments and there are two personal commitments. And really, this is what, this is what makes you a member of this community of faith. First, the two corporate commitments on the top, your church. That's what we're doing right now. Um, can I say that we gather regularly like this is essential. It's not, um, you don't just toss it out and, and, and not gather with the community of faith. It's not biblical. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I am shocked and then I'm not shocked by the people I know who love God, but just kind of take church as, you know, we're on our own right now. Or, I'm, you know what I mean? Just, it's just kind of a come what may. That's a, that's a fact. I'm, I, I just want to tell you, I'm glad you're here. And for your own soul, we need to gather on a regular basis like this. That's a, that's a corporate commitment we make. It's important that we're together like this. Essential, but it's not enough. No, you've got to gather in your group as well. As we say, the, the, the best place to experience wholehearted life in Christ, the, where you are bringing your whole heart to God and experiencing his whole heart, thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices where your mind's being renewed, where you're experiencing healthy and healthier relationships, where your soul is satisfied and therefore you make choices in the power of the spirit that reflect the life of Christ. See, that, that's gotta happen in a smaller setting. It's gotta be developed and deep in there. And that means your group. And that means all of us in some fellowship group or a group of some sort where we're known and we're accountable. Now I'm saying all this, this is an aside from the message, I'll get back to that, is because this year we together have what, what we're calling our, you know, our WIG, our wildly important goal. And, and there's something you're gonna hear us talk about all year and especially in these moments and that is 
all in. We're all in. What does that mean? It means we're all in in moving us into smaller groups. Our goal this year is that 60% of fellowship, Brentwood and Franklin, are in groups by this spring. That means there's close to 500 people who attend fellowship right now that we're encouraging to step into groups. You may be in the room, it's okay, but we're saying now's the time to be engaged in that. Uh, It's gonna mean 40 new groups, that means new group leaders. Can I say to you, if you've ever just pondered, you know, I, I think, you know, I think now's the time we can lead a group or I, I can facilitate a group. We need, to, we need you to step up to lead those groups now. Corporate commitment is that we gather regularly, but then there's a group commitment that we gather in smaller groups throughout the week. That discipleship pathway also includes your walk and your world, and I won't expand on these now because the focus is on group, but those are two personal commitments. I, Rob, no one can make you drink water when led to it, right? That's your commitment in your walk to grow in your relationship. Now, we can provide all the water needed, but it's a personal commitment that you make to grow in your relationship with God. And it's a personal commitment you make to your world, you see, because we were not made for ourselves. Talk about this in a few moments. Our whole gathering, our whole group, our whole personal commitment to a walk is about our influence in the world, not just for us, but for those who don't know Christ. Everybody with me on that? If you're, if you're not in a group today, over the next two weeks, stop at the connect point and just get some information related to that. As well, um, I want you to know that there's a, a, a group connect night that is gonna be Sunday the 25th at three in the afternoon. It's in the program, you'll see it around. Step into that group connect event because in that event, you can be plugged in to a group. Now, okay, we've got a mission and we've got a discipleship pathway. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I I, I mean, it it is to me in a sense. I mean, I'm around it a lot, you know, but um, that's what we need to remember. But here's the, here's the reality. We don't. We, 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 can, we can tend to forget it. And that's why this series, let me come back to this. We're gonna take a look at those two things, but we're gonna look at them in a different way. We're, gonna, we're not gonna take each one and take it apart, okay? So I wanna set you at ease, like, okay, we've gone through this. We've gone through each word. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna come at it from a different, totally different angle. And I believe this. I I was watching this morning Rob's message at Brentwood online because I was watching what he was covering. And as Rob has said, I think he said a couple weeks ago, he and I are just totally geeked out on really how we approach this this year to remind us of our mission and our value because it's exciting to see what God has to say. And if we really get it, I I mean this, you all, uh, we won't be the same. I love where we are and who we are, but it's always about God changing us. If we get this over these next few weeks, we're not gonna be the same in the best of ways. Okay, how many of you, let me ask you this, have heard of the picture superiority effect? How many of you know what that is? No, you don't, but you know what? You really do. 
because that's just the uh, academic scientific term that's been put upon this thought and this thing we understand, and that's this. A picture is worth a thousand words. <laughs> the picture superiority effect. This is how it shows up in academic papers, which show us when you and I read text, okay? You read text. Three days later, you remember 10% of it. When we see an image, three days later, we retain 65% of it. Y'all talking about 600% more that we retain when you see an image. Now, what's fascinating, of course, is all the research says that this is an evolutionary trait that we've developed, okay? And and, uh, that's why we're the top of the food chain. Well, as those who submit ourselves to the word of God, no, it's not an evolutionary trait. It is a God-given design. How about that? That made in the image of God, God designed it so that human beings would recall, would not forget what they see in an image or a picture more than just text. Everybody with me so far? Now, track with me as well. Um, If we believe God gave us the picture superiority effect, doesn't it make sense that if he wants you and I to remember something, okay, Whatever it is, he says, you don't take your eye off this. Does it make sense that he would give us a picture? I think it does. That's the way we're gonna recall it because that's the way he wired us. And so the question becomes, what picture does God want us to most see in our mind's eye, okay? That's a reflection of his, can I say it this way? His heart. His purposes, his plans, his character, what picture is it? Now imagine you were on Family Feud and uh, you, know, you get picked to go up to be the person in your family to kind of get, get the ball started and kind of win, win the right to do the, the deal. And the, the question they throw up for you to, to, to grab is this. Um, what image, when seen, um, most... Uh, connects people to Christianity, to religion. You know, you'd hit the button because hopefully you'd go, oh, I know what that is. And what would it be? What would be the image you see and you go, that's about Christian, The cross, yes, the cross. Now, if we looked at the Bible, okay, so we all went to the cross and I get that. But if you were to say, you know, I'm gonna eliminate that from my mind and I'm gonna start at Genesis, I'm gonna go to Revelation, I'm gonna go, what picture does God want me to keep in my mind? Not diminishing the cross, please hear me say that. But what picture does the Bible give us? Would it be the cross? What we're gonna explore and understand and what Rob and I are trying to teach us is the Bible says it's not the cross. Not to diminish the centrality of the cross as you'll see. It's actually a picture, if I could say this, since it's a picture of God's heart, uh, it's a picture of our mission. That's what it's a picture of. And that's why we're coming at it this way. Now, I'm just gonna do a biblical survey this morning. And then the next four weeks, we're gonna take this survey and we're just gonna go deeper and deeper and deeper in it. I'm gonna start us in Psalm 78. 
If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them there, please. We'll be moving around our Bibles today, but we start in Psalm 78. Why Psalm 78? Because buried within Psalm 78, the people of God ask a question of God that launches us, honestly, into the picture that God wants us to see and never forget. We'll get to that in a moment, um, but I want us to begin, I'll re- back, uh, go back and reread what Carthy had read over us a moment ago. Psalm 78, notice verses one to four. It says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, in, in a lesson, so to speak. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. I want you to note in this particular Psalm, and it's interesting that we've been in Psalms through the summer, this one's different than all the Psalms we've covered this summer. It's not that the psalmist is singing to God. Do you note what he's doing? He's talking, singing to the people of God. It's horizontal, if you will. It is what we would call a historic psalm. Uh, I'm gonna call it a teaching psalm. Does that make sense? Because obviously from the beginning, it says, hey, people of God, listen to me. I've got something I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna teach you that you would not forget. He's speaking really of making disciples. Notice how he goes on in verse five. Here's the purpose of this whole Psalm, okay? He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which which he commanded our fathers, here it comes, to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and they would arise and tell to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. I want you to notice that you know, making disciples is about taking what God has entrusted to us and passing it on to those behind us who would then pass it on to those behind them who would then pass it on to those behind them. And that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about who God is, God's purpose, God's character, their reason for being, that, that I'm gonna recount this psalm that, so you'll remember that you, 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 were, you were given this to pass to your kids. And your kids were given it to pass to their kids that for you right now are grandchildren yet unborn. He's talking about, if I could say it this way, the most fundamental questions of life the testimony of God, who God is, all he is, his purpose, his plan. So, so when he's saying that we pass on to our kids, y'all, we're answering for the next generation the most fundamental questions of life. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? Where's it all going? I mean, these are existential questions that are at the core of every human being. Now, this is the second longest psalm in the Bible. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, This is the second longest. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. I'm gonna give you a bird's eye view because it's gonna launch us. It's It's gonna set us up for these next five weeks. Let me give you a bird's eye view of the history lesson which the psalmist gives. And I wanna encourage you, take you 15, 10 minutes to read it or less. Here's where he goes after saying these things. 
he recounts the acts of God by which God redeems, brings back, brings his people to himself. He recounts these acts from the exodus, from when they were in bondage to Egypt, and he brings them out, exits, he exits, brings them out. He covers that time when they're in the wilderness, right up to the time that David is anointed king. So you've got this historical progression that he recounts, and here's what he does. He gets very specific, and he says, You'll recall that when you were in bondage, God did this. What did he do? He brought these plagues. He did this. He, 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 he brought you out of Egypt by his mighty arm. And he says, and then when you were in the wilderness, God led you with this pillar of fire uh, by, by night and this cloud by day. And when you were thirsty and hungry, he gave you what you needed. And, and when you went into the promised land, there were kings and, and peoples there that you couldn't conquer. And so God conquered them on your behalf and then gave you their vineyards. And he gave you a king, King David. So he, he outlines all of the faithfulness of God, okay? Now what I didn't say is, in between each, in between these acts of faithfulness, he says, God was faithful, and then here's what you did. God was faithful, and then here's what you did. God was faithful, and here's what you did. Now, I want you to know the here's what you did is what you and I do as well. Look at Psalm 78. I've got, I'm just gonna hit these very quickly. If you think about, well, here's, here's, here, here are the responses of God's people to God's faithfulness. That's what it is. Verse 10, they did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Verse 17, yet they sinned still more, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Verse 21, therefore when the Lord heard he, he was full of wrath, the fire was kindled against Jacob, his anger rose against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. God is faithful, this is what you do. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they still sin. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Verse 37, their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. And then verse 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the most high God and did not keep his commandments. Now, if you've we've read our Old Testament, you guys, it's like, well, yeah, I know that story. I know that's what they did. And that tells us what they did, okay? And it's what we do. But I wanna go under it. Let's, let's go to the heart of the matter, if I may say it that way, and ask the question, why? Why, when God does this, why? Oh, people, why did you do that? And to get there, we get to this question that I've posed and that they pose. I want you to look at verse 19, begin in 17 rather, and then we'll get there. Notice it says, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelled against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart with their whole being, you see, by demanding the food they craved. Here it comes. They spoke against God saying, 
can God spread a table in the wilderness? Just stop right there. Can God set a table in the wilderness? Now, I want you to know when they said that and when they asked the question, they weren't starving and they weren't thirsty. See, God had provided all that they needed, but they weren't getting what they craved. Look again at 78. Look at verse 18. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. It's not they didn't have what they needed, but they didn't get what they craved. Well, what did they crave? Don't turn there. I'm gonna read this from Numbers chapter 11, verses four to six. This is in the New Living Translation. It describes this moment. It says, then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain, oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic we wanted, but now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. Verse 23 in our psalm calls manna the bread of angels. It's the bread of heaven. So, so sit with them for a moment and let's, let's feel what they felt and what they were craving. See, what, they, what was going on in them is they could, have, they could have the bread of heaven, okay, in freedom, or they could have the vegetables of Egypt in bondage. And which did they choose? You tell me. Which did they choose? They chose the vegetables of Egypt in bondage. And I wanna go, are you kidding me? You guys, are you crazy? And I do that for about half a second because then I go, oh. I mean, you look in the mirror. And I realize, can God spread a table in the wilderness is the question that I ask all day long. I've been asking it my whole life and I still ask it. You go, what, what do you mean? I mean, I, I don't consciously ask it, but by my actions, it reveals I have asked it. Well, Lord, what do you mean? I mean, when we choose anything other than God to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts, I'm telling you, we've chosen a different meal. We have literally chosen the, 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 the onions of Egypt over the food of heaven. That's what we do. And our actions betray that while we may not have asked it consciously, are you with me? There was something in us that said, I just don't think this is enough for me that what God's got me in right now. I don't think God can provide for me in my wilderness right now. Oh my. And when we reach for the, reach for anything other than God, the truth is that we reach for, in our words, the carbs of life, don't we? That make us feel full for a moment and leave us emptier than before. Uh, I, I got a podcast from my son about a month ago and 
It's from Gimlet Media, and it's, uh, he'll send me podcasts every once in a while that strike him. And this was fascinating to me. It was, it was about a guy, uh, Jerry Colonna. He was one of the first tech investors back in the early 90s. Y'all, this man, he made more money, tell, he describes it, he made more money in a 24-hour period than you and I and all of fellowship's incomes combined together could make in our lifetime. He made it in a 24-hour period. And he, and he said, he said, I, you know, it was like monopoly money. Whatever I touched was gold. And then he said this, and it didn't satisfy me. And he goes on to unpack his story. It was a great reminder to me because he had, there was no faith in this podcast at all. It's just a guy looking for life like all men and women and children. And the truth is that, that, that nothing, I'm telling you, that amount of money won't satisfy. A, a new spouse won't do it. The job, your dream job won't do it. Notoriety, power, respect, fitness, beauty, athleticism, knowledge, financial security, travel, a beach house, a new house, a bigger house. It, they, they just, they will not satisfy the heart. And yet we keep reaching for it. So with that, Psalm 78 can God spread a table in my wilderness? Let me show you why that's been true the, from Genesis to Revelation, that question. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open, go back to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, verse 29. I'm taking us here for just a quick touch and we're gonna keep moving, but you know how the beginning of the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and seeing all that's in them. And over six days, God, um, he, he populates the earth, he, vegetation, et cetera, et cetera. And then on, the, on day six, okay, it's day six now, you see, verse 29 in chapter one, we read, and God said, behold, I have given you, this is man and woman have been created, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. John Bishop is writing in Christianity Today, and he says this, and I quote, food is a gift. In fact, it is the first gift in one entirely accurate sense. All things from God, all things from God's good hands are gifts, but I think food is somehow unique. Open a Bible to Genesis 1. And look at what God does in the creation story. More specifically, look at the verbs. God creates, he hovers, he says, he names, he separates, he makes, he blesses, he sees, he declares it's good. But it isn't until the end of the chapter, verse 29, that he gives. And what does he give? Food. When properly understood as a gift, it becomes clear that food is a tangible expression of God's love for us. As theologian Norman Wurzbach has put it, food is God's love made edible, end quote. So it's not difficult, I don't think, for us to use our sanctified imagination and recognize that in the garden, we are now in the very beginning when God provided all they needed. It's not a giant step to say God spread a table for Adam and Eve. Is it not? Can everybody agree with me on that? He spread a table. All they needed was there. Now, we know how the story goes, don't we? 
don't eat from the one tree. They eat from the one tree. They plunge humanity into fallenness and rebellion. They rebel against God. Now, here's what I'm gonna suggest to us. The text doesn't say that they ask the question. But I wanna say, by their actions, it betrays what they were thinking. Because when God spread that table before them, how else do you explain their actions other than they asked the question, is this enough? Uh, is, is God's table enough for us? And you know what their answer was? What, what, what was their answer? I'm not throwing them under the bus. I'm going by historical fact. What was their answer? No, how about that? You ever thought about the fall that way? That, that, that the fall was them saying, God's table, it's not enough. <laughs> That's the story of humanity right up to today. Fast forward. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 23. We're going forward now. We're going quickly. Psalm 23. Here's the psalm that's in our, arguably the most familiar psalm in the Bible if not one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, let me say it this way. David is seeking to articulate God's goodness. That's the Psalm. The goodness of God's provision and all that God is, okay? So David's articulating that. If you were to take Psalm 78 that describes God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness, and you were to say, Let's, what if someone describes Psalm 78 in a personal way? It'd be Psalm 23, Notice what David sings. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David is describing, and, and this is no exaggeration, He's describing a whole heart, a satisfied whole heart in God. That's what he's describing. He doesn't deny our greatest enemy, does he? He just grabs it and says, even death. Let's just go to the worst that can be, death. And he says, you know, death's but a shadow. Why is death but a shadow? Because I'm in relationship with you, God. That's why death's nothing but a shadow. I mean, you, you, you drove here this morning, you walked in here, you sat down, and I would guess a thousand shadows have hit you. I'm looking at some of you right now, and do you know that you've got shadows on you? Do you care? No, it's, they're, they're powerless. Such is death for the one in relationship with God. That's what David says. And so he's just overcome with God's blessing and provision and goodness and what in the world can describe this for David? Look at verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Men and women, can I paraphrase that? David says, you spread a table in the wilderness, O God. Wow. That's who you are, God. That's what you don't want me to forget about you, oh God. One last passage. Turn to Isaiah 25. 
Let me give you the context. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, has gone. They've been wiped off the planet in 722. And there's the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah is a prophet to Judah. And the Assyrians are just pecking away at them. And eventually, they're, they're going to be taken into captivity in Babylon around 600 uh, B.C. And so prior to that, Isaiah is prophesying to them. And can I tell you what God's people needed as they looked north and said, well, our brothers are gone. And they looked at themselves and looked around them and thought, we're going down. What they needed was they needed a reminder that God is faithful. And they also, they needed it this way, that God is faithful even though we're not. You know, they, they had nothing to stand on. So they needed to know God be faithful even though we're not faithful. And God said, I'm gonna give you a picture of me of your future and your hope. And I want you to listen to these words. Chapter 25, notice beginning in verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and he will, and the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Oh, man, in their time of need, he says, I just don't want you to forget that your future is a table. It's a meal. Don't turn there, because we're gonna explore this more in the next four weeks. But do you know when you get to the very end of the Bible, you're now in the book of Revelation, and John has received a vision of the new heaven and the new earth, and God speaks to John and says, describe what you see. In Revelation 19, 9, John writes, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited, shocker, to the marriage supper of the lamb. God says, I don't want you to forget, there's a meal waiting, a feast waiting, the supper of the lamb. It seems that when we look at our Bible, y'all, The image God wants imprinted on our hearts. Can I say this? And it's not diminishing it because the cross enables it. It's not the cross. You know, it's not a fish. It's not an anchor that they used in early church. It's a table. How about that? A table. 